welcome to Season 5 of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekis-Wolf. Hey, Yasha. What's happening, man? It's crazy to just be looking at you, like right here. We're here in person, and it's super awkward. We're even talking over each other a bit, but I mean... Does this mean that we're going to go back to working in person again? Maybe, maybe, but it is like, it's like this, right? Where you're like looking at somebody and then you want to look away because that's typically what you do to like check your email because you're on Zoom, but you can't. It's kind of awkward. Well, maybe what you should do instead is look into WeWork. (laughs) Um, Look into WeWork. Yeah, I think, you know, I think um, we might be back into some offices at some point in time. And speaking of WeWork, I actually have been to WeWorks on demand like multiple times over the course of the last couple of months. It's a pretty good experience. Have you done it? Well, very timely that you've done that. I have not done it, but uh, we had the occasion to bring Elliot Brown on the podcast today for a second time and in person, which is sort of mind blowing. It's our first in-person recording in, in a year and change. Kind of a special extended episode today. We cover a lot of topics, like a lot of topics. Elliot, uh, if you recall, is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he went on book leave to write uh, the authoritative book on on WeWork. And in in the time that he has been writing the book with his co-author, like still lots of news going on around WeWork, an incredibly relevant story and a kind of crazy story overall. Yeah, I mean, indeed. Like, and so WeWork is is actually going public via SPAC. We talk about SPACs. We talk about meme stocks. <laughs> we talk about Elon Musk. Gosh, we covered a lot of ground in this interview. I mean, pretty much everything that's important right now. And and his book is coming out soon. So this is really great timing for this interview. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, Elliot Brown's second visit with This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. Welcome. Thanks for having me. We're super excited to see you again. Uh, it's, it's fun to be here. It's been a little bit. Um, uh, uh, let's see, a year and three quarters or so, I, I think. Uh, <laughs> was there something happening this past year that, is there a reason we didn't get together? I can't, I don't remember. I feel this is actually the first time that you and I have seen each other, like in real life. It feels like for, before the pandemic. No, no. We had lunch, uh, last October. Yeah. Does at that your count? Old, at your old place. Yeah. Sort of. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe, kind of. <laughs> did you hightail it out of the Bay Area? Uh, I did for uh, unexpected reasons, you know, or, or to write the book and report the book. I went to New York on February 15th um, and was the idea was I was going to meet a bunch of people uh, for coffee and, and pry information out of them um, and uh, was, you know, gradually figuring out who to reach out to when. And then suddenly we can't go anywhere. And uh, I was stuck in Brooklyn, just staring outside at, you know, masked people walking around and watching people freak out at grocery stores. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you, do you feel like you've lived on the West Coast an equivalent amount of time during the pandemic? Like, or I'm, I, what I'm getting at is, I'm really curious about the difference in the coasts and how they are dealing with everything that's going on. Um, yeah, let's see. That's a really good question. So uh, in New York, uh, or, you know, it's different because I was there for essentially the first half. So the, it, for six months, uh, it, it was extremely real very quickly, right? Because it was New York. Um, got, they got hit the first. Uh, and then, and you know, it was also winter. Um, so I, yeah, I guess I don't have a great sense other than given that like the second I got here, it was nice to be outside and yeah. uh, everyone could, could be outside. Um, but like New York, at least in Brooklyn, my part of Brooklyn, 
people did not flee in the same way that I came back to the mission and, and, you know, suddenly there was parking everywhere and, yeah. uh, yeah, like, you know, rents had gone down 30%. Um, so it, did you get to renegotiate? I did renegotiate. Uh, it was, uh, I, I probably should have done it even more aggressively, <laughs> but I, I saved I don't know, like 15% on my rent. That's um, huge. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, they, you know, these pandemics are awesome. <laughs> for that well it's been the exact opposite up here we're recording in sonoma county and it's been the complete opposite like people have been coming here and there's no inventory for housing everything's increasing in costs like everything and of course lumber is just insane you can't build anything anymore it's been quite a year and in that year i mean your life's work i don't want to call it your life's work but let's just say the focus of the past year um was we work and when we last spoke we were kind of talking about shots at WeWork parties and all the kind of quirkiness happening there. How, how have things changed at WeWork? Um, yeah, so, it, well, it, it's like, it's really interesting in the, in the way we approach the book is, is the sort of story changed a, a lot in the, the final six months of, of the book writing process. So at first it was, um, and when the pandemic first started, it was looking like, you know, WeWork could cease to exist in its entirety. And, uh, you, you know, the whole uh, what was happening sort of right after we were collapsed at the end of, of 2019 is suddenly like this chill was falling over the whole startup sector or at least these these large soft bank backed companies and everyone was laying off people. And then the pandemic happens and everyone lays off even more people. And, and it, uh, we were sort of thinking, well, that was really the end of the era and, and sort of normalcy will will return and, you know, valuations are going to come down and, and Silicon Valley will be more chill. And then the complete opposite happened. Uh, and, you know, you sort of look up six months later and uh, Nikola, this truck company that doesn't make trucks, hasn't yet made any trucks, uh, is worth more than Ford. And, uh, you know, a, a few months later, the Airbnb and, and uh, DoorDash are like doubling on their first day out there. And like this CEO of Airbnb is literally speechless on TV when he finds out the stock price. And it's like, what is going on? So, so do you think, yeah. I mean, do you still maintain a, a sense of skepticism or at this point, are you, are you drinking the Kool-Aid a bit and thinking, wait, wait a second, these things could actually go up 5x more? Yeah, I mean, it's it, there's sort of two questions. There's like, you know, what's going to happen to the valuation in the public market? So I think, you know, what happened pre-2019 is there were a zillion startups that were getting really healthily valued by uh, too much money going into them and sort of doing a lot of crazy things as a result and having these really high numbers. And then they were hitting the public markets. And then, you know, suddenly everyone was asking Uber about its losses, which was a new question for it. And the prices on these, you know, really fell. And so people lost a lot of money. Um, I think, you know, what's happened since is, is at least, you know, for now, the, the, the stock prices are doing pretty well. Uh, you know, will, will reality meet, um, you know, will hopes meet reality for, for the Palantirs of the world? And uh, like, you know, will DoorDash long-term be able to live up to its valuation? It, it, like, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of a capital markets question. And it's just like, does money keep flowing into the economy from the Fed? And uh, it's it certainly like, I mean, the, the valuations historically are just like extremely high for some of these companies. And, uh, you know, doesn't like if you compare it to sort of anything normal historically, it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. But um, yeah, so I don't know. So, sure. so the narrative is changing before our very eyes. And, you know, we're I think just more and more information is unfolding by the moment, both about 
the pandemic, the valuations, the tech world, everything. It's just throw everything out the window. How does how does this affect your your book writing process, if at all? How does it you know play out for you specifically? Yeah, so um, I think we uh, you know it was largely sort of in the in the end and the coda of the book where it, like you know what what happened in the end and what was the lesson and the initial I thought think thought was that. Uh, WeWork was this bookend to this era of, of overcapitalization and insanity. And uh, it, it, in the end, it became a little less um, or a little more nuanced and a little less uh, binary. It, it was WeWork was the end to a certain era of SoftBank uh, carelessness and uh, these just these this type of company that, that would just hoover up money and, and light it on fire. And so, you know, Uber and Lyft are in that, that boat. And now I think the companies that are... are you know, super highly valued tend to be generally more SaaS companies, like a little more boring. They, they require less money. And so you aren't like really taking things that aren't tech and calling them tech. So like, you know, Casper is, is back to being a mattress company and not a tech company. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, then, you know, like is Snowflake, uh, which does some sort of cloud thing that I'm still not really sure about. Uh, really, should they be worth 200 times revenue um, or whatever it is? Uh, who knows? Uh, but the, the, those are like really big numbers. Um, so yeah. I, I, so anyway, th- th- that's a long way of saying we 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 sort of tweaked the end to make it a, a little less of an exclamation point. <laughs> has the has the um, let's say the public interest in WeWork waned at all, or has it increased over the course of the last several months? The, uh, there's a I think a Hulu documentary mm-hmm. right that's out. That, was that helpful for you? Um, it, it's hard to do. We'll, we'll see how sales do. Uh, it, it's my sense of just sort of, you know, finger in the air zeitgeist around WeWork is it's definitely a lot less interesting than it was. Mm. Uh, and you'd say WeWork, you know, when I first moved back to New York and and, and uh, to, to write the book and mentioned WeWork, it was still, and you know, a few months after everything imploded and you'd mention it around town and people would be really interested and now I think it's sort of you have to remind people like, you know, it was the country's most valuable startup and and did completely implode They're like, oh, yeah, that thing. I saw that uh, an ad for that on Hulu. Um, and so <laughs> I, I, I don't think it quite has the, the staying power of like Enron, um, you know, where you could still talk about that years later. Does that mean people don't want to read a book on it or do want to read a book on it? Uh, we'll find out. <laughs> but I, I think the answer yeah. will be yes. I mean, I think now it's sort of coming back right in a different way, which is I mean. Is is this a viable business now post pandemic? I, I saw this news uh, about uh, you'd be maybe following this closer than I about Apple employees saying that they want to be a little bit more remote, mm-hmm. not work from the spaceship. I wonder if more and more of these things that happen are actually a, a net positive for WeWork. Yeah, so it's like I mean, with this, what's happened since for, for the business is really interesting. I mean, it's actually become a what it really was all along, and like it, it's it sort of embraced it, which is that it's you know, a real estate subleasing company. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they now are trying to go public again uh, through a SPAC as, but you know, they, they, they are generally not leaning too heavily into the tech side of things, which is what WeWork 1.0 did. And, you know, sort of just acknowledging we're a space provider and like their valuation is, you know, a fifth of what it was uh, or l- less. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, th- that actually puts them, it's sort of a question mark as to what's going to happen, but like puts them in a lot of interesting trends, uh, the center of a lot of interesting trends where 
Uh, people are going, companies don't really know what they're going to need to do for space. Some people say everyone will be remote. Some people say we'll have these satellite hubs in suburbs, which kind of confuses me. And then uh, others say, well, it'll just be more temporary and, and we'll need, you know, just sort of like hub space. And so if you don't, if you're a company, you don't really know what the answer is. It might actually make sense to go to a WeWork for two years, three years and sort right. of see where the world moves and and so i think there's you know they sort of have a, a legitimate pitch that there's going to be demand um and, and it's and it's really interesting to hear them actually talk about things in a real estate space point of view as opposed to being like no this is just going to be the best way to elevate consciousness uh and that's why we're going to yeah. succeed it's like we're going to succeed because I, i've uh, used we work on demand multiple times now for the last few months and it's a lovely experience mm-hmm. like it, it really is and it isn't there's nothing about it other than like here's your community person and a space that's convenient for you and it's really it's a lovely experience but i got maybe a more pointed question like the characters in the we work story are they're big personalities and I've spent some more time over the last few months paying attention to what's going on. We work, watch the Nip, or the the Hulu show and others. And I like I keep coming back to this question that I'm wrestling with. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Like, are the people that are involved in WeWork that were involved in WeWork, are they criminal? Or is this just like really clever and they got away with a bunch of stuff because of the way that the system works? Uh, I, I, our, our conclusion, you know, me, my uh, co-author Maureen Farrell and I, like we, we sort of went into that with an open mind and the conclusion is, uh, it is, you know, unless there's something we really missed, uh, it's all legal and, and it, that, that's, that's kind of the insane part of it. So, you know, the way I like to think about it is with, with Theranos, what you had was, um, the, a founder convincing unsophisticated investors that something uh, was what it wasn't and lying and deceiving them to do that. Uh, with WeWork, I think what, what really happened was uh, you had a founder and a system sort of deceiving themselves uh, to convince themselves that WeWork was something it wasn't. So there was no, um, you know, with Theranos, it's saying this blood machine works and it, it didn't it work. Did they they were saying you know this this office space company is a community company and going to be you know really valuable in the future, and, and you're allowed to say that because uh, com- saying something is a community company is not fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I mean, they, I guess there's a generous. Some people, Matt Levine says everything in security is fraud, so maybe you can make an argument that community <laughs> company, uh, saying that is fraudulent. But um, you know, generally it was just like this this really rosy view about what the valuation was going to be, and everyone sort of looking at it um sometimes they say it's it's sort of like uh they all looked at a pigeon and saw it as a swan and uh it really was just a pigeon um but uh convincing yourself that it's a swan is not a crime who who's running it now and who are the characters involved now have you been in touch with them and you know i'm just overall take on the current we work culture and what it's like so um definitely have not focused as much on uh you know current we work. I've, I've uh, tried to not write about it, but I've failed in, in that attempt um, and, you know, kind of want to move on to other things. Um, but so it's, it's essentially run by SoftBank or I mean, it's owned by SoftBank. And, uh, you know, they brought in an experienced real estate operator, um, Sandeep Mathrani, to to run it. Um, and it's, uh, you know, in terms of the office culture, like it, it's hard to say because it's, they scaled it down so much in the pandemic. I mean, they got thousands of jobs uh for a company that had 15,000 I mean I think it was you know they had 15,000 at the peak and I think they cut 9,000 jobs in total wow. um plus uh and uh so yeah I mean it's it's they, they got rid of the fruit water 
they they got rid of the beer on tap and the kombucha on tap and so like it it, it is a more utilitarian uh you know thing and then they interestingly despite calling themselves a tech company we were 1.0 we said that it could uh you know like it's a tech company you you couldn't actually like lease a space on your phone or so you actually had to talk to a person and now they finally have something that, that you can uh, now that they're a real estate company, that you can finally you, you go know, figure. Yeah. I, might, I might have to become a customer. <laughs> no, it's, it's super simple now. Yeah. What uh, the the PR gaffe that the CEO made recently was? Um, I think it seemed like it was kind of purposeful. It didn't seem like an accident to me. Um, my sense from their their PR people is there. It was definitely accidental, but uh, yeah, it did get them a lot of attention. Sunil, do you remember this? I remember uh, seeing the new WeWork CEO trend on Twitter about something regarding remote culture, but maybe yeah. you could well, fill yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said uh, in an interview uh, that people who show up in the office are more valuable than other oh, people. Oh, I remember this. Is that a fair yeah, paraphrase? Yeah, the, the least valuable people are the ones who want to keep uh, you know, working from home. Um, and I think sort of if, if you work at it, look at it another way, there's some truth to that is that like, you know, historically, I think a lot of these companies that, that had a lot of remote workers found that it, those who worked from home sort of were self-selecting and, uh, you know, it would want to be away from the office. Uh, so, the, you know, it's not without truth, but yeah, it really hit a nerve. And I was like, why is WeWork trending on Twitter? <laughs> well, and do you have a perspective on it? What do you think? Well, a two-part question. What do you think is going to happen with work culture over the next year? Was this just a gigantic overreaction? Oh, I mean, not an overreaction. Let me make it clear. Obviously, there were real functional reasons we couldn't all get together. But is this, you know, long-term, we're all going to remote-only, hybrid, where are we going to be? Uh, my guess, it, and you know, well, it, the, the short term and medium term, I think is going to be a whole bunch of different things because everyone seems to be interpreting different things from this pandemic. And I really find it confusing how everyone can talk so confidently about the future when we go back to the office or, you know, when we go back to, uh, you know, normal life and how their office culture is going to be different. And it's like, how do you know? Uh, why, you know, so, and then there's a lot of people who moved away who, who just aren't going to immediately move back. So I think it'll definitely be different in the medium term. My guess is we go back to something pretty similar to what we did. I mean, if it's three or four days a week uh, in, in the office, but, you know, and then one day, one extra day remote or two extra days remote, it's not functionally that different, at least, I don't know. I, you know, at the journal, we have a, like, there were some people who would, uh, you know, come in on occasion, right? Or, or you, it was pretty flexible. Like you, no one was at, wondering where you were at nine oh one, as long as you sort of you know got the work done. Um, so yeah, I, I I just think there's such value to to human interaction, but that that's just a um, uh, I think we're we're probably all you know. Well, I don't want to I don't want to speak for Yasha, but I'm definitely a in person you know person. It's very I, sad. I love I actually person. love the ability to be away. I really do. It, it's just, it's good for me. I feel centered. Like I just appreciate it. I'm also kind of privileged in that I've got the space to be able to do it. And we're in an organization where we're comfortable with it, but um, I love it. Like I really do. I don't, I don't want to go back to a forced environment to be together, but I really appreciate being together. Well, what about this? Is this, would you consider this a forced environment? We're all no, recording this is a, a podcast. This is amazing. Together. Like okay. I'm so happy. Maybe that we should, you, you know what? Maybe we should all do, you know, remote podcasting or what do you think? Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> we did a few over the last several months and it, it just, wasn't like it same. didn't click. It didn't click. Wasn't the same. Um, talk to me about SoftBank because the, the whole narrative has just changed almost seemingly overnight on SoftBank. And, you know, 
Talk to me about that. A so bit. I think if you look at what, uh, yeah. So what's happened with SoftBank is if, if yeah, in late 2019, if you look at it, it was uh, it, these guys seem like the dumbest investors on earth. They just threw money at uh, it, literally unprecedented, you know, billions of dollars at, at uh, kind of the most overvalued companies out there. And uh, it, it was ending disastrously. And um, I, <laughs> that was true at the time. I think what essentially has happened since is um, SoftBank made a macro bet on tech and, uh, you know, throughout 2017 and 2018 and, and the future of tech. So like late stage startups and the markets have gotten so, you know, uh, 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 frenzied that anyone who was going to do that was going to do really well. And so they are really reaping the, the, the rewards of that. Now, the Vision Fund in the end, uh, you know, they, so they're seeing some like $25 billion gains in like their coupang stake and, uh, you know, a 6 or $7 billion gain. I don't know what it is, latest on their, their DoorDash stake. So some of that will, will negate the loss on WeWork. Um, I mean, both of those will. Uh, but, you know, does the fund overall even outperform the NASDAQ? I think that's the question that, that you need to look out at. at the, the last time they released numbers, the answer was like, no, not close. Uh, now they've still got a bunch of other things sort of sitting in there waiting to come out. So it, it, it could go up. Uh, but, but, you know, like to the question of was this a good investment, uh, you know, compared to sort of like the normal way you could invest money. Uh, last time they, they released something, the answer was no. So, um, you know, we'll see where things go. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that, that your point about, well, they made a bunch of big, big, big bets on tech. Well, that that's true of a lot of other funds. <laughs> and uh, we're seeing, you know, many funds reap the rewards of that right now. I mean, the number of public exits is outrageous. Yeah, yeah. It's been this, you know, sort of like stunning. You have to wait like nine months to figure out the actual numbers on this. But uh, the venture capitalists are just getting these sort of stunning returns similar to the late 90s, uh, which they hadn't been doing. VC as like an asset class actually generally underperforms uh, this sort of other things. But that's not, you know, the best venture capitalists do much better than than the market overall. Uh, so, yeah. Talk to me about SPACs, because this is this is one of your favorite topics to tweet about. Maybe for our audience that's sort of uninitiated, just very basically explain what a SPAC is and, you know, why is this a, a route that some companies choose to go public? So a SPAC is basically a, you know, chunk of money sitting on the public markets looking for a company to invest in. And uh, then w when they find a company to invest in, the, the, the managers of that money then merge with the company. And so the effect is to bring a startup public through a merger instead of through an IPO. And why is that important? The appeal of them is that they get around some rather stringent regulations in an IPO. And the main ones that uh, you know have sort of caused a lot of this frenzy are in an IPO, you can't talk about the future. You can't say, we project we're going to do $5 billion of revenue in three years, even though we have zero revenue today. And you can't go on TV talking about how awesome your company is and how awesome your stock is. And in a SPAC, you're allowed to do both of those things. And so like, lo and behold, people figured out that you can do that. And so you have these companies literally with zero revenue saying, we are going to be the fastest growing company on earth. And, Do you understand, yeah. like, is there a technicality that allows for that to happen? Yeah, I mean, it depends if you want to lose listeners, but I can explain it. Uh, 
it's it's the safe harbor law uh, of this. You know, so basically, Congress said in the '90s um, they amended the law to say that like if you're do- we we really value the IPO process, and if you're going to do an offering, you need to be like super conservative and if if you're talking about the future you can be held liable by investors so you can essentially mm-hmm. be sued if you're wrong about the future and so therefore nobody talks about the future in an IPO because they could easily be wrong and they'd be sued and so that doesn't apply to SPACs uh, so because you don't have that sort of liability issue um, where you uh, you know can be sued if you're wrong therefore you do talk about the future because you aren't going to be sued <laughs> So who who's making money off of SPACs? So in a very at a very basic level, I'm curious to understand the incentive structure. So it seems like you have, you know, the company itself, the company that's been formed to acquire this company. You have the startup, which they're merging with, and then you have the retail investor. Like who who's incentivized to do what? Who makes money off of these things? So the people that make the most money are these the people running the SPAC, and it's really this crazy amount of money for for how little work they do. Uh, I'm sure they they would tell me they work really hard, uh, but um, <laughs> it's you well, sort of. Shaq has a spec, right? He has a spec. Does he? Yeah. Shaq's really? Not, I mean, yeah. Actually, Shaq is an advisor to the spec that we work is merging with, uh, <laughs> because of course a bunch of celebrities have them. So celebrities are making money. Um, if you're a spec running a spec, you get like a free twenty percent sort of of the investment just for yourself, and and so you can put like you know, $7 million in something. And well, I'm not going to have good numbers, but um, you, you can get just many times your investment, even if the company does poorly. Uh, and so that's sort of a real difference with the way investing normally works for like private equity, where you, you only really get rewarded if the company does well mm-hmm. but, and you get this 20% carry here, you get the 20% anyway. Um, so the, the, the people running this back make money the, you know, at heightened valuations, um, which is what, what they've, been buying these companies at the companies do really well because they they can raise new money and 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 they do it cheaply mm-hmm. uh and then um the the hedge funds who initially invested in the spec they make money the the mutual funds that invest sort of alongside the spec they make money and then the people who have been losing money are all the retail traders essentially powering this entire thing who are like saying you know rocket ship emoji to the moon uh, th- this electric car company I didn't hear of two weeks ago is worth all of my, you know, I'm putting all my life savings into it because it's clearly the future and they bid up the price of this thing to $50 and then it goes back down to 10 and they lose all their money. So this seems like then, uh, you know, digging into that further. I mean, I, I read somewhere that there's something like 500 SPACs that are now active or looking for acquisition targets. Why isn't there just a, a frenzy to just find a startup? You know what? Let's just SPAC them right now. Let's just do it. Is there is there any incentive for the sponsor to actually vet this and find something good? Because it sounds amazing for the, for the sponsor, regardless. Um, so the the expectation is that is what's going to happen because uh, they have basically two years from the start uh, to to find uh, a target company to, to merge with. And so yeah, and like, what happens after two years? And then they have to give the money back, and they don't make any money. And so the only way they they make money is by finding a company. So yeah, the expectation you know set set your watch for like October. Uh, you know, 2022 and you're going to see, <laughs> do you have a sense of how many SPACs exist right now? It's, it's, it's I think 500 ish is the, you know, there was a while where there were like two a day and, and, you know, um, it, there was one, someone in our paper calculated that like at the current pace of the year in mid February, like given how many SPACs were coming out, it was like, they're going to raise like 1.2% of us GDP. 
at current pace. <laughs> that, Do you have that, a startup idea for next year, right in advance of October? <laughs> I mean, for a while, it was like if you, anything with an electric vehicle, if you just said electric vehicle three times, yeah. I think you got $500 million. Like uh, we, so, we working. Yeah. <laughs> That's your idea. <laughs> there you go. I like that. We should do that. Let's do it. <laughs> we should do that. Will you? Uh, then uh, we'll have Elliot form a SPAC, be the sponsor, write about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, we're projecting a billion revenue first year. What do you think? Easily. It's a community. Make it too. Make it it's too. a community company. Um, I think, yeah. And I mean, it's cooled since. And the retail traders, I think, have largely sort of moved on to other, you know, things they find exciting, like Dogecoin. But um, so, so that, that's definitely made things chillier. Now, with that being said, I have seen some companies that I respect actually go the SPAC route. Mm-hmm. I think one of them was that delivery company out of Asia, Grab, was it? Mm-hmm. Um, SoFi, pro- based here in the Bay Area. I, th- I always yeah, thought re- that they were a pretty solid company, too. Real companies are doing it. Um, I, I, I think it's, you know, if you're a real company, you can, th- this is cheap. Like, it, it's not just that that sketchy companies need apply, uh, right? Like, it, it's, uh, it, you can get it pretty cheap money, or you could, as a real company doing this. So, uh, but, but why yeah. SPAC versus traditional IPO? Like if you're the company, can you explain the, oh yeah. So if, if the market is super frenzied for SPACs and you know, the SPAC world is going to give you a valuation of $20 billion, but your bankers for the IPO are like, well, you know, maybe it'll be 20, maybe it'll be 15, maybe it'll be 25 depends on the day. And you're like, well, uh, why don't I just go with what's certain? And so th- then you, you know, you, you choose the SPAC for that reason. Cause there's a, a certainty and also like, the market's really frenzied, so it, it could be even like more rewarding. Maybe the SPAC world is willing to do like forty billion, and the IPO is more likely to be thirty. Tying it back to WeWork, what's the WeWork SPAC valuation? Uh, Seven point nine billion, um, which is down from forty-seven at the peak, and they're wow. actually much bigger now because they had started all of these. I mean, they were essentially like ready to double in size because they had signed so many deals to to expand by the time that Adam was fired. Speaking just purely from a personal, non, non-professional non perspective, what's your opinion on if you buy WeWork stock as a retail investor? Do not view this as investment advice. This is not investment <laughs> is advice. Is this where the safe harbor cetera, thing comes into play? I'm actually not. Yeah, we, we, we are not allowed to opine on, on stock prices. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll avoid that question. Let me ask it a different way. <laughs> Do you think that um, WeWork will continue to grow um, at the pace it has during the pandemic or in general? this kind of shared real estate space, do you feel like it's going to be on a tear for several years? Um, I don't, um, I think we're going to know a lot more in six months uh, about how much demand there is for it. But like fundamentally, there was never any real reason to grow at some hyper fast rate. That, that was sort of like the fallacy of WeWork and or the main failing is they confused, uh, you know, just this sort of vibe of the valley where it's like everything needs to be hyper growth at for an asset like a, a type of business that just doesn't lend itself to that because the main fact about WeWork and and any real estate company is you need to build the space and that's really expensive and then you need to get paid back to do that to justify building more space and so uh, there, you know, when you're doubling in size every year, it just it, like a, from a financial standpoint, it does not make sense. Uh, so, so like I, I just, unless they figure out a different way to grow and there's a sort of complicated, boring way they could do that, which is more like a hotel, uh, where, you know, Marriott doesn't actually own hotels. They, they, they just, uh, you know, strike deals with landlords who do own them. Um, so, you know, you, you could see them doing that, but then like revenue doesn't grow as fast because you're, you're giving more of the revenue away. So, 
Um, I think that's that's WeWork's plan. It's a little unclear that they you know somehow managed to to plan to grow quickly and not spend much money. Uh, so that, you know it gets back to these <laughs> flaws of the SPAC process where you can just make these projections. Um, but uh, yeah, like I, I think that that their office like the business model of subleasing office space is one that that works with in in some realm like there's people willing to pay for it uh and pay more than you're paying as a lease like that it's it existed before we work in fact <laughs> in a really big way uh but um it, so it's not a fundamentally flawed business but i it's just fundamentally flawed as a like hyper growth killing it silicon valley business noted yeah no so shifting Shifting gears for a second, I'm curious, Yasha's got a lot of questions along these lines as well. Right before the pandemic, we did a few episodes on the state of the relationship between technology and journalism, tech and journalism. And I think we had Kate Clark on from the information on the entrepreneur side. We had a couple of couple of people as well. Describe the kind of state of coverage between the tech world and, and just, you know, the, those that cover it. Yeah, it sort of depends if you're living on Twitter or not. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's been a lot recently in, of, of sort of gossip and drama um, among the Twitter-focused crowd on uh, where there's more tension. And I think a lot of that is around things like Andreessen Horowitz uh, sort of encouraging some of their companies and, and certainly saying, you know, they want to go more direct and make their own media and sort of cut out the gatekeepers um, and and Coinbase is is probably the best example of that. Um, and uh, I think what's driving you know not speaking for Andreessen Horowitz but driving that broader sentiment among the the sort of um, we can do it better crowd in Silicon Valley than than you know these annoying East Coast cynics um, is you know just a general if you go back a few years, like there wasn't much skepticism about tech. And I, I think that was very unwarranted, uh, meaning there should have been a lot more skepticism back in 2015 because these companies were, were enormous uh, and, and rapidly growing and becoming extremely influential in our lives. Um, and so I think sort of, um, you know, what's happened is, is the big media organizations have staffed up their, their coverage out, out here, out West. And, you know, big media traditionally the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Bloomberg, like our job is to sort of, you know, speak truth to power and, and to hold power to account and you know, raise skeptical questions, critical questions of, of people that are doing things that are bad. And so when, uh, you know, you, you suddenly have this onslaught of, of stories about all the bad things that's arising from like Facebook's algorithm, I think that that a lot of people out here find that offensive as some sort of like, no, we want to go back to the days where you just talk about how we're making the world a better place. Uh, and essentially that th th my view is that that like, it's, it's simplistic and very pro journalist. But um, that's where a lot of this is coming from, that people don't the people out here aren't really accepting how powerful they are in the economy mm -hmm. and don't like the or aren't accepting the skepticism that that society provides <laughs> to the most powerful in the economy and want to go back to a, a place where there's less skepticism. You always want to be a startup, even when you're a gigantic, successful multinational organization, right? Totally. And, and also, I mean, the way we cover startups has changed like this is, and one of the things that brought me out to Silicon Valley was the, the lack of skeptical coverage of startups. And, yeah. and it was driving me insane. Uh, and you just look where no people, reporters, 
you know, at Forbes and TechCrunch didn't even seem to like ask the questions about like, well, the, your product, you seem to be giving it away and yet you say you're killing it. How like, can you tell if this product is even good or not? If you don't know if people, you know, when people aren't willing to pay the actual price for it. Right. And, uh, so that that's changed a lot since the, the 2015 age too. And, and, you know, I think that was actually responsible for a lot of WeWork's rise, uh, and, um, then, you know, the, the, the changing winds were kind of responsible in part for, for its demise. What do you, uh, you know, what do you think of the brewing kind of, I don't want to say, uh, it, it feels like a conflict between Apple and Facebook. I don't know how you would characterize it, but this, this notion of privacy versus sort of openness. And then, you know, you have, you have that playing out in multiple ways it's a between PR battles. It's a P- PR battle. There we go. PR battle. We'll call it a PR battle, but, uh, you know. Um, whether it's the, uh, you know, the location tracking, iOS 14 changes, and also subsequently the app store control, like ultimately how does this play out? And, you know, what, what do you think? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't follow the Apple stuff close enough to, to, um, have any sense of like where it's actually headed. I mean, they do certainly seem to be doing a good job hitting the nerve of, of sort of like what are concerns and differentiating to say like, well, here's how we're better. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I, I shouldn't, um, say things about Apple. I don't understand. <laughs> Have you spent any time on clubhouse? Uh, I spent a little, um, uh, and you know, it was, uh, sound super through. I don't know. <laughs> I, it, I didn't, I mean, I, I, I probably should spend more time on there, even though it, you know, it seems to be waning. So maybe it was a good idea. I didn't spend much time there. It, it seemed fun ish. Um, I, I was really impressed at how quickly it grew. Like I don't, you know, um, these social apps are really hard and, and, uh, it, you know, a lot of people would thought the valuation was totally absurd, but you know, like if, if these things are actually really growing like wildfire, it's like really yeah. unpredictable where they're going to grow. Um, and so, um, one would be excused for, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's obvious that it wasn't yeah. going to grow forever. Time and attention are unbelievably difficult to get. So when you create that, it is kind of magical, whether it scales over time and continues to add that same kind of attention grabbing value, like to be determined. But it was pretty fascinating for a little bit. Sunil and I hung out a little bit. Sunil was on it all the time. I yeah. was for like a, a good solid month. Um, yeah. So it was like last uh, like during the last day or, or like at night for every evening. What, what was the it was it was I would go for a walk every day. That was my my like routine to get out of the house with the you know, the kids kind of just driving me insane with the distance learning <laughs> Zoom administration. So around like five to six thirty every day, I had a route that I would just go and I would have Clubhouse on for that route. And, you know, I would spend time on it. And it was the novelty of just talking to people during this period where. Yeah, literally just not seeing anyone. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. I, I mean, um, I guess still is. It's it's not. <laughs> it's still growing, and it's kind of growing rapidly because they just put it on Android. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I feel like people will uh, go. You know, but I did get. T- I did. I did kind of grow tired of it a bit. Maybe I'll I'll come back to it at some yeah. point. But um, it felt special in that early community. You know what other product felt that way to me was Quora in the early days. Yeah, yeah. It, it felt super special because you know you you had. You know, somebody who was an expert on whatever you wanted answering the question. And it was like, whoa, hey, hang on a second. This person's a world's authority on this thing. And they have time to answer my question on this community. Yeah, like, that's unbelievable. The funny uh, byproduct of Clubhouse is that I felt like I was closer to Sunil, even though we weren't talking every day or even every few weeks, because I would get the notifications of him joining. Even when I didn't join, I was like, oh, I know what Sunil's up to. It was yeah, an pretty, interesting dynamic for a while. Pretty interesting dynamic. We did one chat on there. Has, has Adam Newman been on there? 
Uh, Adam's not very good with technology, so. Um. <laughs> <laughs> what's he what, up to? Yeah, exactly. What's he, what's he doing? Where are they now? So Give us a, where, where are they now? We gather, he's in Miami, because, of course. At the uh, Bitcoin conferences. <laughs> I mean, apparently he, he's spending a lot of time down there, um, maybe even moved down there. And, uh, you know, one could note that he just got a big um, chunk of stock that will be subject to capital gains. Uh, so that's one reason to move to Miami. Mm -hmm. um, and he showed up at some other, you know, party of, of startups down there. Um, and, you know, so he had spent the first part of the pandemic in Israel with his family, sort of, um, you know, in exile. And uh, then came, moved back to his house in the Hamptons as he gradually started to sell a bunch of his other houses and recently sold the one out here in the Bay Area. Um, and, you know, he's been investing in startups uh, and, you know, trying to invest in a lot of startups um, and kind of plotting the next big thing. But we haven't heard anything, you know, we're going to try to drill down on this a little, but we haven't heard anything about like actually specific real idea. I think just a desire to do something big. It feels like he's got a second act uh, gotta com be. coming up, like a big one, right? I mean, you know, I, I think he desires to have that, uh, whether or not you can come up with an idea that can, can be that. Now, then there's the question of money. I do think that Silicon Valley is such that they just always give money to people who, you know, made lots of money in the past. Right. And so, yeah, I there's don't a, think there's a couple of people that you're seeing kind of come back who are coming back from the second wave. You know, who's actually building a pretty successful company is uh, um, Andrew Mason from Groupon. Really? He's got he's he's got something in the uh, podcasting space that's like apparently doing extremely well. I think we like that. We love the story culturally of like someone did incredibly well and then we tear them down. Maybe they did something bad. Maybe they didn't, but they get torn down and then they disappear for a while and they come back and we want to give them the second act. But in this case, I mean, it seems like at least I, I remember our, our first interview with Elliot. I mean, it seems like there was just a lot of egregious stuff going on here. Um, he's a pretty, I mean, as we discovered more throughout the, the book reporting and writing process, he was really an atrocious manager. I, I mean, just yeah. world-class. Like it, it was uh really dysfunctional you know just just beyond the the way they allocated capital like the the, the way the company was run was super dysfunctional I, I think we can't we can't finish this podcast yasha without we have to there's two more topics we have to cover here that are really important for the past year yeah because we're, we're a tech podcast we're a tech and culture podcast we haven't covered elon musk and mm -hmm. we haven't covered bitcoin and <laughs> i know that elliot doesn't that's not his beat either of those things but you know what he has what, what's the narrative around Elon Musk feels like it changes daily. And, you know, it's like one minute he's a, he's a hero to the Bitcoin crowd. He's SNL. He's really kind of become this, you know, figure who's transitioned out, you know, and really had like crossover appeal to the culture. Give us your take on Elon Musk. So uh, this is not a consensus view out there, but I do think there's actually a lot of similarities, you know, a huge number of parallels between Elon and Adam Newman. Uh, I, I think that... Atrocious manager? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I know less about that with Tesla. Um, I, I think they both have this extraordinary ability to talk about the future in a way that seems real and gets people to throw money at them. And... Uh, you know, one of uh, the, one of WeWork's early investors once sort of told me toward the the end of the, the the book writing process, like, look, Elon's the second most second wealthiest man in in the world. Like, 
Adam ha- has a lot of those qualities, like the ability to distort reality and uh, get people to not look at the fundamentals. Because I mean, the, 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 another way of saying this is, uh, you know, with the caveat that Elon is, is I think, much smarter, much uh, more engineering focused and actually knows how to make. And like, you know, a Tesla is, is a far better different car than WeWork is like a standard office. Uh, but uh, Adam made a good product, a very good product that was real estate and sold it at a tech valuation. And Tesla is not valued like a car company. It's, right. it's not even barely valued like a tech company. I mean, it's just stratospheric in a way that, you know, I think the stat is something like um, Tesla, you know, depending on the day, they make fewer cars than Subaru and are worth, uh, you know, more than all the auto companies combined, right? right. So, um, or all the big auto companies combined. What's he doing with the crypto stuff? Like, I don't understand. And like, I, I, I know, no I know idea. you don't either, but like, what's your, what's your best guess, right? Because I think he's I, pissing off the SEC. <laughs> is, is that all it is, right? Because it's, it's Dogecoin. It's like some like sex related coin yesterday, right? We're recording this yeah. on June 6th and it's, uh, well, I just have no idea what he's doing. Do you, like the SEC angle feels like it could be pretty real, right? Because he's kind of messing in an area where they don't really have their fingers in yet. And so he can kind of say what he wants. It yeah. Sort I, of impacts the business, kind of doesn't. I mean, if you read, there's been a couple stories in the journal recently, not, not by me, by my colleagues. And uh, I think the story of Elon is that um, he does things that literally violate the law. Uh, and uh, then, you know, th- there's been numerous instances of this. And then the regulators don't go all the way. So, uh, you know, there was a story in the journal um, recently about how the SEC uh, was essentially like, you know, emailing Tesla in a bunch of things that we didn't know about, um, like saying you continue to violate the law and the order like you were this order they had signed where he wasn't allowed to tweet about material things and he was continuing to do it. And, you know, the the FAA said, don't launch your rocket. And he's like, well, let's launch the rocket and <laughs> speaking of rocket launches i sorry well I, I said bitcoin but i'm gonna go to the meme stocks just for a moment um it's kind of a relationship there yeah that's that's all tied together i mean so five years from now um do you believe um regulatory agencies will somehow prevent these reddit stock message boards from kind of you know getting behind a stock well what, what's the how does this play out I have no idea. Uh, the only sort of dark thing I was thinking about literally on the drive up here, because I was listening to a podcast on meme stocks uh, on the journal, um, was, uh, you know, this must be what people in the founders in the late 18th century were thinking about when they thought about how they didn't actually trust democracy. Like you can't, you know, look at what the masses are doing. They're completely irresponsible. <laughs> like what if we have a situation where, um, you know, this isn't my full belief. I'd have no idea what I think we should do. But like you could see a very dangerous situation where you have the top five or, you know, five out of the top 10 stocks on the stock exchange are meme stocks. And and why is that dangerous? Because that's where all our retirements are. Like we all have index funds. Uh, you know, if you have a retirement account, you're you're just bought into the general market generally. And so if there's these incredible, like if our, our retirements, our future like wealth is, is swinging wildly based on what's trending on Reddit, that, that seems like kind of a, um, a tough way to live. Are, are people or, making money off this, Yasha? Um, I know people that are making money off of it. Like they're making actual money. Like they're actually making money off of it. I, I figured that at some point in time, like the, the AIs that are running around doing all the trading, like the robot trading anyways, are going to be able to figure out how to predict based on activity on 
Reddit or wherever, like what the response is going to be in the market. Like we're, it's the, whatever happens, the system is going to kind of find a way to recollect itself and then be able to game it in the way that it had been gaming. If you kind of like air quote gaming it in the way that it had been gaming it in the past. Like it's, the stuff is not, it's, it's early. It's interesting. It's kind of interesting because I think that there's this relationship to culture, popular culture, but it's not like there really isn't dramatically different dynamics. It's just, or maybe there is. I don't is know. There? I mean, I think that it's w- what's happening is in, in finance is essentially what happened to sort of like democracy uh, <laughs> in the past few years where people go into these silos and echo chambers and they only see like if you're on Reddit and you spend a lot of time on there and on Twitter and you follow the people who you want to follow. And if a stock is, is sort of taking off and people are really excited about it, all you see are these really positive things and you don't see the 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 person posting on reddit saying like well lucid motors uh hasn't sold a car yet why are we valuing it more than gm and instead you just see like lucid motors to the moon and you think it's undervalued um and so you buy more and so i i think that people don't in these sort of like finance social media echo chambers they don't understand underlying reality and don't really have a way of doing that unless they're going to yeah, really. See Does that. the journal ask you, or do they restrict you from buying crypto and talking about crypto? Does that I don't. Is I don't, that a fair thing I to don't ask? Know our crypto rules. I don't own any, um, and I mean we aren't allowed to own things that we cover. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, other than sort of index funds that are, are hold baskets of it. We're on year thirteen of what many thought would be like a five-year bull run. I mean, it's insane. And so now. <laughs> I'm not asking you to speculate on stock market indexes, where they'll be, but you have real estate euphoria, you have stock market euphoria, you have crypto euphoria, you have fears of inflation, commodity. Is this, is this all, I mean, is the, is the narrative just changed where, oh my gosh, this thing is just going to keep going up for indefinitely because of the, the social media narrative and all of this, or is it your belief that at some point there will actually be a reckoning of sorts? I, I wonder that and have no idea. I just know that as someone who often likes to try to point out um, market inefficiencies and bubbles and manias, it's getting kind of tiring to see them never end. <laughs> um, I, yeah, well, so, and, 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 and so like, you know, to the crypto thing, if you have, you know, Berkshire Hathaway as on one end of the spectrum as the traditional value investor safe bet, and then on the other end, you have AMC stock, where would you put Bitcoin on that spectrum, in your personal opinion? Uh, close to or further extreme than AMC. I mean, you know, I think that, I don't know, Bitcoin's weird because the, the bigger it becomes, the more it actually becomes sort of like a safe investment because at some point, like, if 100% of people accept it as a currency, then it's a currency. Um, but, I mean, crypto, I, I just personally struggle to understand as, as just sort of like covering it because not, not that I ever have a desire to cover it, but it's like I can understand when a real estate company is overvalued as a tech company. I can't understand when something that has no inherent underlying value is value. It sort of has infinite value. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're, like I realize there's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And I'm not saying there's like that crypto will never um, have a future because, uh, you know, another way of looking at it is like, if you don't believe in um, sort of if, if you believe that these current trends of sort of like, you know, memes and disreality w- w- and just like whatever people say on Twitter is true will continue, then like this pro- stuff probably is a great investment. <laughs> I, like, life a, is, I know you're a Bitcoin guy. You're a Bitcoin guy, aren't you, Yasha? I'm, I'm so to be super clear, I don't know that I call myself a Bitcoin guy. It's not like I'm buying Bitcoin. But you all get time. it. But, it, but I bought Bitcoin back six years ago. 
There we like go. Like a few of them. That's why we're but, sitting at an ADU in your backyard. No, but like here, there it is. Because the people that I were around were, I was at BitTorrent, this company who mm-hmm. thought about you know d- distributed information and being able to kind of pass stuff around to people and not trusting a centralized resource to be able to do it. Uh, and the founder at the time was like, "This is a joke." And it's all a farce and it's just some fiction people are using to like believe in back at the time. And a handful of us were like, all right, well, whatever, it's $20. So you didn't get tell a me about it. Bitcoin at $20. <laughs> I, w- I might have an ADU right now if you told me about it back then. But I mean, there's something powerful about like we ultimately do make our fictions our realities. Like we do that all the time. Yes. And so if that happens kind of in mass, to your point, it would, it would like Nicaragua or somebody yesterday, some uh, like country said we're El Salvador El Salvador I'm sorry that's a, that was horrible I read something no, you're like on Twitter and I was like something you know like we're mass mutual bought a bunch like we're, we're kind of getting to this point where the fiction is the reality now and it's just kind of is what it is and on the Twitter stuff though I mean I look at the the clips from the Miami conference going on right now that looks I see, crazy I see how ridiculous it is and that's that's ultimately why it's not you know I shouldn't it's just the community around it doesn't feel like the solid base of a community I that think you it's feel. exactly what Elliot's saying. It's like, you just get, you're like, I'm going to go to a group of people and all we're going to do is tell each other how awesome everything is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and then like the, you fully, like your minds melt very quickly and like you fully believe these things. Yeah. That, you know, no one else even understands the word. I mean, shoot, saying. you want to believe it if you're in it, right? <laughs> like you want to believe that you just, I just got this thing. Yeah. It's to, amazing. To, uh, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Is that how I, pre- yeah. The black swan author. He, he, he hates the Bitcoin community and tweets about it all the time. And I'm not at that end of the spectrum. And, I believe like some part of me believes that, yeah, maybe it'll succeed. And you see all these institutions putting money into it, but institutions have put money into stuff that's failed before. We work. So nice way to tie it all back together. <laughs> What's next with the book? So where, where are we? So the book is, is launching July 20th. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, uh, you know, hoping people read it. And uh, like, I think the main, you know, there's a, a lot of lessons within. I, I think the, um, some of the things we hope people take away are that it wasn't, you know, we saw this as as more than just like Adam Newman being a crazy guy who sold uh, a farce of a company on on unsuspecting investors. I, I actually think it's 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 a lot more of a tale of Wall Street and Silicon Valley and Sand Hill Road all sort of collectively diluting themselves because the incentives are there to do that, and they they were all sort of like thirsting for some founder uh, who they they worship because other people told them to worship them. Uh, to come along and uh, you know sort of paint some some rosy story that, that they could throw money at and uh, Adam really sort of just struck in, in a, a really sort of like perfect time and perfect way uh, to to raise more than like most any company on earth had ever raised in that that period besides uber um, and yeah I mean I, so the, like the, that's the story I, I, I hope people take away there's a lot of salacious details mm-hmm. uh because those were not hard to find um and you know th- there there's a point within where um yeah i mean there, there's some some stuff on like the, 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 i guess everything was bigger than, than than we thought so adam was greedier than we thought he wanted more money than we thought he we work was going to be bigger than than we thought i mean the the scale that he and masa were talking about was was just extraordinary um and uh, I mean, yeah. Do you want want details? Yeah, where where um, where as the author is it best for us to go buy the book? Um, 
You can also say we can just subscribe to your OnlyFans page and you're going to be reading <laughs> chapters. Still have to set that one up. Um, uh, I think, you know, we're, we still have to make a website. Um, the uh, Penguin Random House, if you just Google The Cult of We, the Penguin Random House page will give you a whole bunch of different bookstores you can buy it from, including Amazon. Uh, and so there's audio book, uh, ebook, et cetera, and, you know, old fashioned paper. I'm really excited for the book. We're we're super thrilled that here we are more than a year later and uh, actually sitting here physically in a ADU. Uh, I can't call it a room um, together. Uh, it's it's going to do well. Um, and uh, we, we really thank you for, for coming on again. Uh, thanks for having me. It's fun to be here. So Neil, like no BS. What's your hot take on Elon Musk? Are you a fan? You know, I'm a fan, but I'm not sure whether he's you know, spontaneous and figuring shit out as he goes or whether this is all part of some grand plan. Yeah. I think today's conversation was really fascinating. I'm I'm super intrigued at the mechanics of writing a book when the story is still unfolding. It was, it was fascinating to talk to Elliot about how like lots of new information about what's going on at WeWork has happened over the course of kind of him writing the story with his co-author. And they have to change the narrative a little bit to make sure that it represents what's actually happening, which isn't maybe, or maybe it is as salacious as we thought that it was a year ago. Well, I think we're going to find out pretty soon when the book comes out, but I suspect some uh, news stories are going to break once it does, once it does come out. He's the kind of reporter that that feels like that's what's going to happen for sure. I'm excited for the book, but um, it was really great having Elliot on today to debrief on all of these subjects, given his knowledge of, you know, financial markets and, and tech. Thanks for joining us today on an extended episode of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. Thanks for joining us on this most recent episode of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. My name's Yasha, and on behalf of Sunil and myself, we'd like to say thank you for spending your time with us. If you love this episode as much as we loved recording this episode, please go back to the podcast player that you found us on, leave five stars, along with a comment we promise to read every single one.